0: i got to listen to all that a multitude of times. I love coming early on a Sunday morning to listen to the praise team and, to, and, this, and this morning the orchestra practice, I could listen all day. Thank you. They did a great job. I appreciate them so much. Hey, I want you to know that today is National Refugee Sunday. And while we did not give it a particularly big emphasis, we were deferring to our work in, in Mexico at Aguas Calientes. I don't want us to ever lose fact or lose sight of the fact that there are hundreds of thousands of people who have been displaced out of their homes and are living in utter chaos and desperation. And I can put you in touch if you're interested in how to participate in in assisting Caps Crusade. I mean, CREW has a great organization that reaches out to the refugee community. In fact, you could even go on a mission trip in December if you wanted, if you have a real heart for refugees. You know, We're studying the book of Nehemiah. The Jews, in this case, were refugees. They had been taken from their land, totally displaced, living in a place that had nothing to do with their culture, where they were enslaved people in exile. And God brought them home because God has a heart for the refugee. And I just wanted us to be aware of that this morning. Thank you. How about turning to Nehemiah 9? Nehemiah 9. We'll continue our study in Nehemiah. And while you're finding Nehemiah, the ninth chapter, you might also turn to Leviticus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Leviticus, the 23rd chapter. We're going to read a portion out of there in just a minute. Last Sunday, John Malloy taught it, you know, out of chapters seven and eight, and and he brought us to a time of great celebration. In chapter eight, they had been reading the law, of God, and it probably had been the first time for some of them in, in their entire life. Some of, them, of the people who had been returning to Jerusalem had been born in Babylon during the 70-year exile, and then they had come back with their parents, and apparently they had never really heard the words of God uh, out of the law taught and preached to them, and now this had happened. The walls had been rebuilt, the temple was rebuilt, and, and the law was being read and the Levites were explaining the law and probably helping them understand, you know, not only was what was written in the Torah, the Pentateuch, but also using their own history out of Joshua and Judges and First and Second Kings to let them know how this whole thing had played out. And they were really excited and they discovered what well, we should be celebrating The Feast of Tabernacles, the Feast of Booths, to remind us that we were once exiles in in Egypt, and God brought us out of that. And so they're reading, and they discover they're reading, and it's very timely, they're reading in October. In Nehemiah 8.13, when it talks about the the first day, we could very, well, let me get there instead of just bubbling around. Nehemiah 8:13 it says on the second day of the seventh month which in the Jewish calendar was actually October November so on the second day of the Jewish month that could well be read on October the 9th they all the people were reading and the Levites explained to them we need to do the Feast of Tabernacles and we know when to do it because Leviticus the 23rd chapter Leviticus 23 tells us when to do it Leviticus 23 verses 33. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel, saying, On the fifteenth day of the seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. On the first day shall be a holy convocation. You shall not do any ordinary work. For seven days you'll present food offerings to the Lord. On the eighth day you shall hold a holy convocation and present a food offering to the Lord. It is a solemn assembly. Do not do any ordinary work. And then drop down to verse 40. And you shall take on the first day the fruit of splendid trees, branches of palm trees and boughs of leafy trees and willows by the brook, and you shall rejoice before the Lord your God for seven days. That's what Nehemiah called them to. That's what the Levites called them to. It said it's time on October the 22nd through October the 29th for us to celebrate it's not a time to be sad. It's not a time to mourn. It's a time to rejoice that the Lord has protected us and rescued us and continues to protect and continues to rescue. And so that happened the 22nd to the 29th of October. It was a time of celebration for the whole family. The feast taught members about God's provision and God's protection. They celebrated during that time. It was a time to remember their origins where they had come from, where they had gone, and then where they were ending up because God had provided. It was a time of celebration. Next slide there, please. See, God's Word, when God's Word was read, when God's Word is read, out loud here or in your time at home, it, it can lead to a time of celebration, as it did here in Nehemiah 8. God's Word revealed God's faithfulness and they were they had a great time of rejoicing in that and so they did until October the 29th and then on October the 30th they they put all of their booths away they they took down all the little shacks that they'd built they'd kind of gone back because the the feast and the festival was over and life was going to go back to, to normal until we get to Nehemiah 9 let's pick up there Nehemiah 9. So the Feast of Booths had ended on the 22nd day of the seventh month. Now on the 24th day of the month, October 31st, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day. For another quarter of it they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. And on the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua and seven of his friends. And they and they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. And then the Levites, Jeshua, and seven of his friends said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all praise and all blessing. What are they doing? Why are they back assembled again? Because they had read the words of God. And they had brought celebration. But they had read the words of God and it brought conviction. They, they gathered, and they gathered not like they had just mere days before. They, they are in fasting. They're wearing sackcloth, which is just itchy to drive you crazy. And they're putting dirt on their heads because they realize that the Word of God has pointed out their sin also. God's protection and provision, but the people's sin. And it's cut them so deeply that they're, they're fasting, they're wearing sackcloth. That's standard morning apparel, and not like in the morning, like sadness morning apparel for people of, that, of the Jewish nation when, when there was a great catastrophe or there was something that needed to be, uh, sadness needed to be expressed. And they were saying, oh my, what have we done? And they realized that they needed to separate themselves from the other people. It was a conviction that said, as they were reading in Leviticus, Leviticus 20:26, 20, they were reminded that God said, I am holy and I've set you apart as holy. You're different than all the rest. You're set apart for my use. And as they read that, they separated themselves. The word started to become alive to them in a convicting and challenging way. And while the word had led to celebration, now it is revealing sin and it's leading to grief. Which is not inconsistent at all. If you go to Romans 7, Paul talks about that very challenge that says, you know, sometimes the words of God, they just bring me great joy and sometimes the words of God just bring me great turmoil. 7.21 or 22. For I delight in the law of the Lord... He says, I love the words of God. I delight in the law of the Lord in my inner being. I have joy and celebration, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin, which dwells my members, wretched man that I am. And that's where the children of, of Israel found themselves. Having read the law, there was great delight in their inner being, and then there was great turmoil. And they cried out as a nation, Wretched men that we are, who is going to save us from this? That's because the Word of God, if you slip over to Hebrews, the fourth chapter, that's because the Word of God is a very active entity. It is not a book that is written, and contained within leather binding. No, the writer of Hebrews tells us very clearly in Hebrews 4.12, For the word of God is living, and it's active, and it's sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joint and of marrow, discerning the thoughts and the very intentions of your heart. And that's what the people were experiencing. As they read from God's words, they they were being cut to the quick. Which would make you say, make me say, well, that hurt. It hurts when I do this. Well, then stop doing that. And instead of saying, oh, the law of the Lord is convicting us. Let's go about our business. They intentionally gathered together again and said, read more. Read more to us. And so the Levites got up and they read more. For a quarter of the day, which is measured in a 12-hour sunrise to sunset. So for three hours, the Levites got up again and started reading for the word of the Lord and started explaining from their history. And the people were, it would just, give us more, give us more. It hurts, it hurts, it hurts, but it's so good. Give us more. And they did. And what happened after conviction? There was great confession. They confessed their sins for a quarter of the day. Please read to us from God's word. Oh, you did. Oh, my God. Look at what we've done. Look at what our fathers have done. We have. We've sinned. Please hear us as we confess our prayers publicly to each other, in a group, to you. And then, having read the word, and been convicted, and it led to confession, and then they worshipped. Because the more we come under conviction, and the more we confess, the more we understand the goodness of God. And when we understand the goodness of God, we can't help but worship. And that's what they did, and they they worshipped in a and it must have been a really unique way. The, the Levites divided themselves into into two groups. They were standing on the steps here, the the stairs of the Levites, and they put one group on one side and one group on the other side, and and it was like being at a basketball game, where each side would just just praise God and confess louder. And then the other side, no, louder! No, our God is great! No, our God is greater! It must have been an exciting time as they worshipped there, too, reading the Word, confessing, worshipping, praising God for his goodness. The remainder of Nehemiah is a prayer. And outside of the Psalms, it's the longest prayer in the scripture. And so I would just invite you to read along with me out of Nehemiah 9, verses 6 through the end of the chapter. But actually, I'm going to back up 1 to 5 because... The Levites said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You know what? You and I are a lot smarter than Nehemiah. He did not know the name. We know the name. How do I? Well, let's go to Philippians. Let's look at Philippians. We know the name of the one who is exalted above all blessing and praise. Philippians, the second chapter. Philippians 2, verse 8. improper for us at all to begin this prayer from our perspective like this stand up and bless Jesus blessed be your glorious name Jesus is exalted above all blessing and all praise Jesus you are the Lord you alone you have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their host the earth and all that is in it the seas and all that is in them and you preserve all of them and the host of heaven worships you Philippians, skipped over a few pages. Probably should have told you to put your finger there. Colossians, the first chapter. Paul writes in verses 16 and 17. Colossians 1:16 and 17. For by him, Jesus, all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So when they stood up and said, you have created the heavens and the earth, we know who that was. That was Jesus. Jesus, you are the Lord, the Lord alone. You, Jesus, have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, and all their hosts, and the earth, all that's in it, and the seas, and all that's in them, and you preserve all of them. Jesus, you are the Lord, the God who chose Abram, and brought him out of the earth, the Chaldeans, and gave him the name Abraham. And that was Jesus, too. You're going to find that these first verses through about verse 15 are of the prayer are just a recounting of God's faithfulness. Here's what God did. Here's what God's like. Here's God's character. Because they've been reading the book of the law, and they're just they're just as they read it, they go, "I didn't know God did. God does this, and He does this, and He did that." And they're reading them, and so it says, "And you're the Lord that brought, that chose Abraham and brought him out of the earth, of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you." Somewhere in the middle of ten verses about how faithful and incredible God is, they know to say that Abraham. Jesus found your heart faithful and made you a covenant. Wouldn't you love to get to the end of life and have Jesus look you in the eye and say, I find you faithful. Man, what a great place that must have been. And so they, they're they recounting that that not only was God always, but Abraham was especially faithful. And and there was a covenant given to him that his offspring would... would uh, he would give to his offspring, God would give to his offspring, the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Pezurite, the Jebusite, and the Gergesite. And you have kept your promise, for you, God, are righteous. Jesus, you're righteous. And you heard the affliction of our fathers in Egypt, and heard their cry at the Red Sea, and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants, and all the people of his land. For Jesus, you knew they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself that is to this very day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through in the midst of the sea on dry land, and you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone thrown into mighty waters. And by a pillar of cloud, you led them by the day, and a pillar of fire, you led them by the night to light their way for which they should go. And if you read about the angel of the Lord in Exodus that goes before and after with the pillar And the angel of the Lord, in most every application in the Old Testament, is a reference to the pre-incarnate Christ. They're recounting. They just don't know they're doing it. We'd have the advantage of knowing that that was Jesus that was leading them as they went on their way. Paul specifically talks about that um, in 1 Corinthians 10. 1 Corinthians 10. Paul's saying, you know, all these things were written to us for for a purpose that we would know how to live. And so in 1 Corinthians 10.1, Paul says, For I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and passed through the sea, and were all baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and they all ate the same spiritual food, and they all drank the same spiritual drink. For they drank from the spiritual rock... That followed them, and that rock was Christ. They were following Christ. Jesus was leading them through the desert by a pillar of cloud. You led them in the day by a, by a pillar of fire. You led them in the night. You came down to them on Mount Sinai and spoke to them from heaven and gave them right rules and true laws and good statues and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath and commanded them commandments and statues and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger, brought them water out of the rock for their thirst, and you told them to go possess the land that you had sworn to give them. Man, what a, what a great chorus what a great prayer god you are incredible but they've been reading the law and what follows is is their awareness but they i hate that phrase (laughs) god you're so good god you've done so wonderful but they Verse 16, but they and our fathers acted presumptuously, one translation says arrogantly, and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, but they stiffened their necks and appointed a leader to return them to their slavery in Egypt, which was just stupid. Right? Stupid. We're, we've We've been in slavery for a hundred years. We see the, the plagues. We see the hardening you know of Pharaoh's heart. We see the great rescue. You know, we're we're out of we're heading out of town, out of Egypt with all the plunder, we're gonna be free, and we get to the Red Sea and it looks like a dead end, and immediately it's we need to go back there. Let's choose a leader, we got a leader, let's go back there. Which is stupid. Okay, but they that that's says. but Continuing in verse 17, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful. Some of your translations say compassionate. That's compassionate or merciful, number one. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love, and you did not forsake them even when they made for them a golden calf and said, this is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had created great blasphemies. Blasphemies of idolatry just are riddled throughout First and Second Kings and Chronicles. We're going to build a pole, we're going to build a golden calf, we're going to build some object, and we're going to worship it. And that's blasphemy. And verse 19, And you in your great mercy, that's true did not forsake them in the wilderness. The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night, to light them on their way that by which they should go. You gave your good spirit. Jesus gave their, his spirit to them there to teach them and instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouth, and you gave them water for their thirst Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out. Your, their feet did not swell. What an awesome God you are. And you gave them, verse 22, and you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possession of the land of Sion, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of, king of Bashan. You multiplied their children in the stars of the heaven, and you brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of the land that they might do with them as they would. And they captured captured fortified cities and rich land and took possession of houses that were already full of good things, cisterns already dug, vineyards, olive orchards, fruit trees in abundance. And they ate and they were filled and they became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. They're remembering what's written in the law. God had taken them to the promised land and had it move in ready. Everything already provided. You don't have to dig a well. You don't have to plant an orchard. You don't even have to furnish a house. Because I, God, have provided that all for you. He gave them many good things. And so they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. Isn't that interesting that the very blessings of God made them forget God? Over and over. They they delighted, they became fat. Nevertheless, they were disobedient. Because the very blessings of God made us made them forget him. That's going to become important to us here in a little bit. Let's keep going. Verse twenty six Nevertheless they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law their, your law behind their back and killed the prophets. Well, we're moving into judges now who had warned them in order to turn them back to you, and they committed great blasphemies. There's those idols again. Therefore you gave them into the hand of their enemies, who made them suffer, and in the time of their suffering they cried out to you, again and again and again, and you heard from heaven, and according to your great mercies, that's three, compassion, you gave them saviors who saved from the hand of the enemy. But after they had rest, that's a gift from God, they did evil again before you and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies so that they had dominion over them and when they turned and cried to you you heard from heaven and many times you delivered them according to your mercies and compassion that's four and you warned them in order to turn them back to your law yet they acted presumptuously arrogantly and did not obey your commandments but sinned against your rules which if a person does them he shall live by them that's just a little if They could just live full if they just hadn't obeyed. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the land. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, that's five, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful, that six God. Now, verse 32, Now, therefore, our God, the great and mighty and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, who is merciful and compassionate. Let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all the people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. It's not God's fault. Lord, it's not your fault. You're not a bad God. You're a good God. We're the people that keep twerping this thing up. And you gave us what we deserved. Our kings, our princes, and our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them, even in their own kingdom. And amid your great goodness that you gave them, and in the large and rich land that you set before them, they still did not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. Behold, we are slaves to this very day in the land that you gave our fathers to enjoy its fruit and good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. Yeah, they're back to the promised land, but they're still under the rule of of Persia. They're slaves. They have to pay Persian taxes. And its rich yield, the land's rich yield, goes to the kings who you've set over us because of our sin. They rule our bodies over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. And because of all this, we make a firm commitment, a firm covenant in writing on a sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Here's, Here's what that is. God, look how great you have been. Look at all the things you did for us. You've been so faithful and loving. But, and you were faithful and gracious. And you were merciful and compassionate. And over and over and over. And he says, even to this day, and we find ourselves. And Nehemiah says in the prayer, this has got to stop. This has just got to stop. We can't live like this any longer. Something needs to change. And so we're going to make a covenant with you, God. A signed covenant. We're going to write it all down. We're going to get all of our leaders to sign it. And it's going to be personal because we are going to write this covenant. It's going to be practical and it's going to be very public. And that's what we'll talk about in chapter 10 next week. What the covenant was about. But what's really important, I think, right at this moment is that after they had read the law, which had led at one point to celebration, but they the loss got right down into their inner person and it led to conviction, which demanded confession, which broke out in worship. And after this prayer of recounting God's faithfulness and our unfaithfulness, it it says there's got to be a commitment. We have just got to do something different. Okay, at the moment, folks, Avalon Church is like a car idling at an intersection waiting for the light to change. We cannot go on like this any longer. Something needs to change. And I realized this week that we have neglected to teach from God's Word about one of the when you's in Matthew 6. When you fast. The list of biblical fasters is kind of like a who's who of Scripture. Moses, Hannah, King David, the prophet Elijah, Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Daniel, Jesus, Paul, the church at Antioch and more, they were all people who fasted. And great Christians in our, in our more recent history have fasted. Martin Luther, John Calvin, John Knox, John Wesley, Jonathan Edwards, Charles Finney, many, many, many others have fasted. Throughout the scripture, fasting normally refers to the abstaining from food for a spiritual purpose. While it may yield some physical benefit, and it probably will, fasting is primarily a spiritual exercise that just happens to involve our bodies. In scripture, the normal means of fasting involved abstaining from all food, solid or liquid, but not water. Are you getting excited? While the New Testament contains no mandate, no commandment that we as Christians fast on a certain day or with a specific frequency, Jesus clearly assumes we will fast. It's a tool too powerful to leave endlessly on the shelf collecting dust. And while many biblical texts mention fasting, and I sent it out as an attachment to an email, the fasting handout I also made, about 80 hard copies that are out in the lobby. If you didn't get one on the email, I'm going to send it again this week. But if, if you just want one today, it contains a lot of scripture. In it. I, I hope you'll pick one up, but I want to look at Matthew 6, 6 to 18. And I already alluded to it during the offering time. And it reads, And when you fast... Do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face that your fasting may not be seen by others, but your Father who is in secret and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Jesus just is going, he says, I want to tell you how to have a successful fast because I know you're all going to fast. When you fast. Let's go a little further. Matthew 9, verses 14 to 15. And the disciples of John the Baptist came to him saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Jesus was saying, my disciples don't fast. They feast because the bridegroom is right here. And we're partying. But there's going to become a moment when I go away. And when I go away, then my disciples will no longer be feasting. They'll be looking to the day when we all feast together in the kingdom of God. But they're going to fast. They're going to remember that Jesus, what Jesus did, they're going to remember that he's gone. They're going, to, they're going to attune themselves to longing for the return of Jesus and the kingdom. They're going to fast when the bridegroom is gone. The bridegroom's gone, folks. We're awaiting the return of the bridegroom. That's the joy of Revelation, especially of Revelation 19 when the bridegroom returns and you and I are all invited to the wedding feast of the Lamb. And then we won't fast any longer. For a multitude of reasons, we think fasting is a lost discipline. Perhaps it's because we might, uh, how we might think of fasting, with the accent on abstinence and a sense that it's another thing I have to do. But I really want to encourage you to be awakened to see that when Jesus talks about fasting, when we see fasting in the Scripture, it really... It's is a joy, it's, for the joy it can bring as a means of God's grace to strengthen and sharpen my Godward affections that I might find myself closer to God. All right. The scripture says there are many forms of fasting, personal and communal, public and private, congregational and national, regular and occasional, partial and absolute. And typically we think of food when we think of fasting. But I'm going to expand that a little bit, if you will. Now, we can can fast from good things. Remember, this was the problem that they had in Nehemiah. You know, they had all these good things from God. They were good things from God. And it was the good things from God that were distracting them from God. And so Martin Lloyd-Jones says, fasting should really be made to include abstinence from anything which is legitimate in and of itself for the sake of a spiritual, special spiritual purpose. So normal Christian fasting usually is private and occasional, choosing to go without food, not water, for some special period, whether a day or three or seven, in light of some spiritual, specific spiritual purpose. In most cases, fasting is a private matter between the individual and God. There are, however, occasions for corporate or public fast, such as we found in Nehemiah 9. The group fast can be a wonderful and powerful thing provided there's a prepared people. That's why I'm teaching. That's why there's a handout. That's why I'm going to ask you to email me and find me and call me if you have questions that are of one mind in these matters. So, we are calling Avalon Church to a day of fasting. Tuesday, November the 14th, a week from this Tuesday. That'll give us all time to read the handout, look up fasting a little more in scripture, understand an opportunity, get an opportunity to say, God, the the, the pastor is calling the church to a fast. What and how do you want me to fast that day? For me, it's going to be three meals. I'm not going to eat on Tuesday. November the 14th but for you it may be two meals or maybe one meal or perhaps it won't be food at all perhaps the Lord will call you to fast from social media no you see see fasting is is not just abstaining it's saying while I'm in the discomfort that comes with with uh, abstaining, I'm going to turn my attention to the God who fills every need. So while I, if I fast from three meals, for three meals, me and God are going to have a little special quiet time. And every time my stomach grumbles and growls, it's going to be an occasion to go, but man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Feed me, Jesus. Social media, Ira stopped by Tuesday after I talked about this a little bit, and he said, so what, what are you going to fast? You must, what's the hardest thing for you to give up? I said, well, I'm going to choose to fast food because I happen to love food. Okay, but not far behind it would be everything electronic. Because the first thing I do in the morning after having a cup of coffee with my wife, is I check my email. Because someone obviously needs me. And I check my Facebook to see what y'all are doing. And I do that all day in case I might miss something. If you fast from social media and use that time for the Lord, well, first, just imagine in your mind, Tuesday, November the 14th, you're not going to look at Facebook. Yeah, okay. But that's good because it'll be uncomfortable and it will help us realize some things. And here's some guidelines I just want to give you the focus on fasting. This, the focus on our fast. This fast must center on God. Not Jim, not Avalon Church, not, it must center on God. John Wesley has said. First let fasting be done unto the Lord with our eye singly fixed on him. Let our intention herein be this, and this alone, to glorify our Father which is in heaven. That's it. We're going to fast to glorify God. That's the primary purpose. It's the only way I'm going to be saved from loving the blessing more than the blesser, which is what got the people in Nehemiah's time in trouble. God had been so good to them, they didn't think about God anymore. We need to be reminded of this. Now, once we understand that the, the primary purpose of the fast is to focus on God, then we're at liberty to understand that there's also going to be some secondary purposes in fasting. More than any other single spiritual discipline, fasting reveals the things that control us. Go back to social media. Go back to food. This is a wonderful benefit for those of us who want to get closer to God because it reveals things that control us. If pride controls you, it's going to be revealed almost immediately. Anger, oh man, you go without a meal, you turn into a snarky person, don't you? And you go, well, of course, I didn't eat, I'm hungry. No, no, no. It reveals what's inside of us and controls us. I must satisfy my my anger by eating. It's the only way to not be angry. God says, no, look what I just discovered. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, fear will likely surface during fasting. My selfishness and lust for a good feeling that comes from food or TV or watching Georgia football, notice the colors, okay, no, I will not fast next week's game. Okay. And healing for those things is available through the Lord. So, a day of fasting. Back to that slide. Just to remind us. I'll send you an email again this week. It'll have, the, it'll have this attached. And it'll list these three things that I would like you to consider in preparation. When we fast. And I'd love to take a roll call here. I'll do that next week, okay? When we fast, I would like us to focus on God, center on God, and then I would like us to ask the Father, after you've experienced, hallowed be thy name in the midst of your fast, then join me in asking the Father to reveal his will in the final selection of the pastor. We're down to three candidates. And I remind you again, only members will vote. There's a Discovery in Avalon class tomorrow evening, Monday, and next Saturday at 10. Reveal your will for the final selection of the pastor. Lord, God, revive our passion and energize our spirits. Because we're idling at the light, waiting for the light to turn color. We need to get going for God. Revive our passion, energize our spirit, and Lord, make financial provision for your work through Avalon Church however you choose to do that. Let's not let the good things of God, let's not let our greatest adversary to loving God be his gifts. And so I think next, not this Tuesday, but next, we'll just take some of those good gifts and say, I'm going to put them down and see if you are enough for me. And if you're not, show me. Reveal yourself. Feed me. Let's pray. Father, we read Nehemiah and the recounting of the history of Israel and we look at them and go, what a bunch of idiots. How come they couldn't get it right? They couldn't figure it out. It was so plain and simple. But, Lord, we must be honest. The Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, and it's cutting to our very soul and to our very intentions. Lord, reveal in us where we have taken the good gifts You have given and we've become fat and happy instead of instead of in in awe of you. We've become so focused on the blessings, we've missed the blesser. And so, Lord, would you call us to conviction through the word of God that we would present ourselves to you? Maybe today, definitely, Lord, on the 14th, as we together fast before you, our Lord, our God. Spirit, if you're moving amongst us this morning, during the brief moment while the praise team plays, would you, would you invite people to come make commitments to you? Commitments to a faith walk with Jesus by accepting the gift of eternal life through the blood of Jesus Christ, to, to step forward and just keep on walking right over to the prayer room, off to the right, because they want an elder and some other people to pray for them. Lord, move among us this morning as we sing and worship. In Jesus' name, let's stand together.